church with some neat folks. I mean, we've heard different people share stories, but you go to church with people that have actually experienced persecution. And uh, I don't mean teasing at work, uh, real persecution and con. Thank you for sharing your family's story um, wherever you're at this morning. And then uh, the guy that she was talking about was her dad, Yam, who you've perhaps seen at church in the lobby before. They've come over from Vietnam. And when she was saying that he was out in the jungle, the reason why mom had to tell them that was because the government was looking for him. Uh, when he converted to Christianity, uh, the people in Vietnam, the government does not smile upon that. They're not very happy about that. And so they would receive persecution as a family. And Yam uh, arrested multiple times for being a Christian and put in prison, and the family would get persecuted as well. Um, so mom was the only one that really knew what happened, and he fled into the jungle and then came here to the United States through an organization called World Relief and worked here for a few years. And then eventually World Relief was able to bring their family here. And their family, uh, you've perhaps seen as part of our church before. If you haven't, you see them in the hallway today. Uh, ask them some of their story. Yam's got uh, some amazing stories. But they're here now, and the reason why they came here is because of the religious freedom that we have where you can actually worship Christ without any government coming on you and persecuting you or any people uh, beating you or imprisoning you and doing all those things. And uh, we have a family in our church that's come alongside them um, and helped them make the transition to the United States. And our church desires to, as, as well, through World Relief, impact refugees. There's a lot of them coming here. If you look at your worship program, there's some information about that coming to the Triangle. And next week is our $1 Sunday. And you may remember uh, at the beginning of the year I announced to you that every fifth Sunday of the year we're going to have a $1 offering. And that's a $1 in addition to our regular tithes and offerings that we put in the boxes or give online or however you do that. We ask you to bring a $1 bill, and we know some of the kids have been saving up for that and have different kids come up to me and uh, mention that type of thing. We've talked to our daughters about giving some money for this, and what we're going to do for the, this next $1 offering is we're going to give it 100% of it goes to um, the refugee uh, world relief stuff that's happening here in our city. We're just even giving care packages for them, toothbrushes, deodorant, soap, stuff like that. Um, so if you bring a $1 bill, put it in the bucket outside of the boxes, um, there'll be a separate bucket for the $1 offering or for kids and different people. We, we, our desire is that every person would have $1 that's in attendance that week, and we're going to give 100% of it away, in addition to the normal 10% that we give away uh, on a Sunday anyway. So if you would Bring your $1 bill next week, and we'll be a part of that, and you'll hear more about World Relief and more about the $1 offering. Last time we gave for clean drinking water around the world. This time we're doing something that's actually the world coming to us um, here in the Triangle just by nature of, of where we live. So that's great. And you can also look in your worship program, see some other things that are happening today after the service at 12 o'clock over at the office. We're looking for leaders for the uh, ministry we have called Celebrate Recovery, and there's going to be an informative meeting about that. We've got so many people interested in it that we actually need more leaders. And so um, if you've got a potentially time or opportunity to do something like that or you've been looking for an opportunity to serve or a way to lead, um, this would be a great place um, to help people work through hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And so we'd love to have you come and be a part of that as well after the service today over at the church office. And if you want any more information, it's in your worship program or at the Connections kiosk. And if you're a guest today, hi. <laughs> We're glad you're here. Uh, welcome. And uh, I want to thank you for coming and being with us. If you fill out your connection card that's in your worship program, turn it in at the first-time guest kiosk. Uh, we'll make a donation to a different organization that's also trying to impact people for Jesus Christ. And that's really our goal is that you would experience life change and all those that we come into contact with, whether it's through another organization, online, or whatever way, uh, would have an experience with the living God. And so as we go into our series again today, a new beginning series, we're just going to pray that God would meet with us. So let's pray together. Father God, as we open up your word this morning, will you please meet with us? We know you're present. We know you're ever-present, always present in all places, that you're omnipresent. And Father God, we thank you that you walk among us, as you say, about the churches and revelation. I pray that we'd never do anything that would cause us to lose 
our candlestick, our, our light in this world for you. And Father God, I pray your spirit would just breathe through this place, that you would do the miraculous in our midst, that you would transform lives, that you would heal diseases, that you would please transform our minds by your word, that you'd wash over us, renew us, change us, bind us together in mission and heart because we're surrounded around your glory. God, will you please meet with us because we need you. This is what we even saying about God. We need you to show up and we need you to do something in our midst for us to be different. Will you please change us? Don't let this just be a religious exercise we go through. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. It's kind of a rainy day out there today. I hope that you're with me this morning, energetic. Are you there? Are you ready for Don't be thinking about your nap now. And if some of you are sitting at angles, I can't see you. But uh, hopefully you had a good week this week. I don't know what that means for you. For some of you, that might just mean uneventful. Have you ever noticed how sometimes you can go through a week and forget that days happened? <laughs> you just kind of get in your routine and you're kind of going through almost on autopilot or cruise control. But then every once in a while, aren't you thankful when something shocks you out of that? Whether it's a, a news headline or whether it's something that happens in the neighborhood or somebody tells you a funny... It just some, something happens that will get your attention. It'll cause you to stop and pause and think. And this week I was reading and I saw a headline like that in one of the news things. I was, I've told you before, I like the news. And I was reading some stuff on the internet and there's this one headline that, that stuck out to me and I had to click on it, I had to read it. And what it was is that a grandma stopped a robber in her house with a hobby horse. <laughs> have you ever seen a hobby horse? We have a picture. It's basically a stuffed horse head on a broomstick. And so I don't know what grandma did. I don't know if she was like, hey, don't run. You know, I don't know what she did, but she grabbed this hobby horse and told the burglar, you know, stop robbing her house. And the guy got caught. I read the article. What ended up happening? She confronted, she didn't want to take the kids' toys. You can't steal the kids' toys. Anyway, she has a hobby horse to use. So it got my attention. I don't know, some of you have traveled before. Have you been to other places where you've seen how strange to us the food is that they eat? The reason why it's strange to us is because we don't eat that. It's out of our routine. It's not french fries, it's not pizza and ice cream and burgers and salads. It's not that stuff, but they'll eat things like silkworms. Have you ever seen that before? Silkworms are not the most appealing looking things to me. Some people enjoy eating them. I read about a place where they eat seahorses. <laughs> Speaking of hobby horse. And then they, there's other things that they'll eat that are unique. Now, when I go to a buffet at different places, foreign, you know, Chinese places or Asian type places, I like the places where it says what it is, like sweet and sour chicken. And I look down, <laughs> adult chicken nuggets. That's right. You know, take those in. And, and I like that kind of thing. But I've been to places before where they don't label it. And I'm not talking about like pizza and chocolate pudding that they always have at those places for the kids that come to there. I'm talking about like science fiction looking food. Okay? And it gets my attention. I stop and pause. Should I? No. Keep moving. You know, octopus leg. I don't know what that came off of. It. I don't want that. But because it's different, it's out of the norm, it causes me to stop and pause. This past week, I think that my father-in-law caused some of our neighbors to stop and pause. This is something that we did that was a lot of ordinary. We had a neighbor very generously say to me that he would give us his trampoline so that my daughters could jump on. His daughter's getting a little bit older, and he said, all you have to do is you have to move it from my house to your house. He lives a couple streets away. I was trying to figure out how are we going to move this trampoline from his house to my house. We didn't want to roll the thing the whole way. My father-in-law, let me be very clear who came up with this idea. My father-in-law came up with an idea that we would balance a trampoline on top of his car. And in case you think I make this stuff up, I took a picture. And so here we have it. That is his car with the trampoline on top of it. We thought, I thought, as I was videotaping this, we should probably take the Southbridge magnet off, but we didn't. And uh, he told me that the idea would be that he would get in the car and drive the car up this hill, around the corner, down the street. And what he wanted me to do, and I didn't know this at the time, I had deck shoes on. He said, you run behind the car. <laughs> and so you can try and imagine this as we're going through the neighborhood. I'm running behind the car. Like, what am I going to do if this falls off the car? Let me tell you, I'm going to get out of the way, okay? But I'm back there. I'm running behind the car. My father-in-law's driving the car. We drove by some people that were out in their front yard. Guess what? They stopped and started watching. I don't know what they thought. 
I'm pretty confident they didn't think this. Those guys are smart. Yeah, I'm pretty confident they didn't think that. I'm pretty confident they didn't think, I see that every day. It caused them to stop and pause because it was so different. It was so out of the ordinary. Now, let me ask you this question. If God were going to try and get our attention, or get the whole world's attention for that matter, what do you think he would do? You think about it, he's God. He can do anything. He could change the sky green or red when we walk out of church today. He could peel back the ceiling tiles and speak audibly in here. He could make night, day, and day, night. He can do anything he wants. What do you think God would do if he wanted to get your attention, get the world's attention? Well, he did it once in the first century, in the early church. And you know what he used? Wasn't the only thing, but one of the main things he used was very simple. Relationships. And the reason why they caused the world to stop and pause And the scriptures actually say people were in awe of, they sensed the presence of God, they get favor from all the people was because of the relationships they witnessed, because it was so out of the ordinary, it was so different. They weren't just acquaintances and people that said hi to one another or knew each other, worked at different places or any of that type of stuff. They had real relationships. Do you have real relationships? And by real, I don't just mean that they're they're not phony, they're not fake, that they're sincere. I mean real biblical relationships. When they saw, when they looked at these people, were people that were willing to sacrifice for one another. And when I say willing, it wasn't because it was obligation. I mean, they counted it a blessing, a privilege to be able to sacrifice for the sake of someone else. People that were honest and open about who they are with one another, be able to confront sin in each other's lives, and I have to worry about the relationship not being there still. Be able to speak truth to one another, regardless of what decisions are being made by you or by an individual. Do you have those kind of relationships? Where people will be real with you, will be honest with you, will care for you, will be generous with you, and do you have those with other people? That's what we're talking about today. We're talking about real relationships. We call it new community because what these people were experiencing was a new kind of community, and it caused the world to stop and take notice because it was so out of the ordinary. And unfortunately, it's still out of the ordinary. In a day and age where some of you have hundreds, if not thousands of friends on Facebook, do you have any real relationships? We live in what Randy Frazee oftentimes calls a crowded loneliness where we can go to church and we can go to work and we can go to all these different environments where we have many associates, many acquaintances, a lot of people who know us, but do they really know us? And do you really know them? Would you sacrifice for them? Do you love them more than you love yourself? That's the kind of relationship we're talking about when we talk about a new community. And see, what happened for the early church is that they came to a place where they realized they were going their own way. Even though some of them were doing God stuff, they were going in a way that seems right to man, but in the end leads to death. And they stopped, and they experienced the ultimate new beginning. They repented and turned to Jesus Christ for a relationship with him. That's what we began talking about in this series, a new beginning. But a new beginning sets you on a new direction. One of the results of that new direction is new community. And that's what we're talking about today in Acts chapter 2. If you brought a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We'll have verses on the screen, but if you brought a Bible, you can see what's going on around this passage and all the context that's happening there. In Acts chapter 2, we're going to start reading in verse 42 as we talk about this new community, these real relationships, and you might be surprised where we find them because they're not at the local bar, they're not at Starbucks, they're in the church. You say, oh, I'm not surprised by that. You're a pastor, you're supposed to say that stuff on paper, that theory sounds really good, but let's be real candid with one another today. Now we're talking about real relationships. We'll be transparent, okay? Have you ever experienced phonier relationships than at church? And think about why. Some of it's our fault as individuals when we come in. We don't want people to know that we have issues, and so we couldn't put on a facade, a mask, whatever you want to call it. We put on our plastic smiles and pretenses and all that stuff and pretend like things are way better than they actually are. 
But it's also the fault of the people that we come into contact with. Because to be real honest, we got busy lives. And we got our own burdens. And we got stuff. And somebody starts dumping their stuff on you. They don't have time for that. You don't want to mess with that. And you don't know how to fix that. And you're not equipped for that. And so we ask people questions like, how are you doing? We say things like, fine. Can you imagine if someone said to you, oh, my dog died. I lost my job. Marriage is really struggling. Kids won't listen to me. What would we say? We've got a whole code language for getting people to stop sharing their stuff. We say things like this. I'll pray for you. Let me decode that for you as a pastor. Please stop sharing. I've heard enough. That's good. I just meant hi. That's all I was really saying. And so we put on these facades. That's not how it's supposed to really be. It's not bad to pray for each other. But you know your motives and why you shut down a relationship sometimes. These people didn't have that. Let me tell you what happened here. Peter preaches a message to them. They're transformed. They get a new beginning. And turn to Jesus Christ, and they're baptized, 3,000 of them in one day. If you're a new believer, you trusted Jesus Christ, and you haven't yet been baptized, let me tell you something. You need to be baptized. And what that is, it's a public identification with Jesus. You're letting the world know, I'm following Jesus now. I have this new beginning. And maybe you were trusted Christ a long time ago, were saved a long time ago, and you haven't been baptized. You need to do that. If you're interested in being baptized, we're going to do baptism here in the coming weeks. If you want to check on your connection card today, I want to be baptized. Someone will follow up with you and give you information for doing just that. These people, they were baptized, they publicly identified with Jesus Christ, and then they began to meet together. An overflow of what happened in this new beginning, in this new direction, was this new community, and we read about it in verse 42, in Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to four things here, the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Kind of an outline for what's going to happen in verses 43 through 47, and I'll illustrate those four things. In verse 43, it says, everyone was filled with awe, everyone not just the church people, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Verse 47, praising God and enjoying the favor of all, not just the church people, all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being transformed by Jesus Christ's saving love. Those who are experiencing salvation, those who are experiencing a new beginning. So more and more people were added to this new beginning and set in this new direction and then living in this new community that we see here. And you look at those verses, verses 43 through 47, what stands out to you? Do you see some themes through there? There, There's one thing that sticks out above all the other things. In verse 42, it says they devoted themselves, and there was those four things. Verses 43 through 47 unpack those four things, and what you continue to see is they're continuing to be devoted or committed to one another. They're committed to one another financially. They sell their possessions. They even let it hit their pocketbook. They're committed to one another with their time daily. They're meeting together in their homes. They're committed to one another in prayer. They're committed to one another in this common union they have with the breaking of bread, a communion, which is a celebration of the death of Jesus Christ that they have in common, that brings them together, this common thread that weaves their hearts together. They're committed to one another. And so what you see in this new community is a new kind of commitment. And if we're going to have new community, it will require a new kind of commitment. Each one of us, one of the reasons why we don't have some of these relationships is we don't want to commit to these relationships. A new community requires a new kind of commitment. And the problem for that is we're incredibly commitment-averse. Let me illustrate it for you. How many of you made New Year's resolutions? I don't see any hands. You're lying. And you're mad at me for asking. And I broke mine too. So I understand. But we don't even want to talk about commitment. 
because we don't want to break the commitment. And so then we don't want to make the commitment and we're not really committed to much of anything. And I could share like societal and cultural stats with you. Here's the problem with me sharing stats with you about lack of commitment. None of them will shock you. (laughs) None of them will surprise you. If I share divorce statistics, you'll all be like, yep, that's what they are. I'm not surprised. I could share statistics like 110% of marriages in a divorce. That didn't make sense, but many of us would say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's probably true. Well, I guess if you did it more than once, and maybe you could add it up that way, or whatever the type of deal is. I could talk to you about debt and how people will buy things and not even ever intend on paying them back. And you'd be like, yeah, that's just kind of how we are. We'll change you know, relationships and churches and jobs like we change clothes. I mean, we're just not that committed as a society, as a culture, and so is it surprising that within the body we're not either. But here's the problem. We'll never experience this kind of relationship because it requires a commitment. And you see that these people in the early church that had this kind of relationship, they were devoted, verse 42, go back. And and they devoted themselves. That's a single-mindedness. It's also in the present tense. And let me tell you what that means. It wasn't a one-time commitment. It wasn't one day Peter preached a message and they all got excited and we're committed to this. It was daily they devoted themselves continually, present tense, every day. We devote ourselves to four things. The first one, the apostles' teaching. The first thing that they're committed to is the teaching of the Word of God. The equivalent of that for us would be the New Testament. That's the apostles' teaching for us, whether it's the epistles, or the gospels, the book of Acts, the book of Revelation. And the thing was, they didn't have those books. So when the apostles taught, they didn't say, open to the book of Acts. <laughs> they were the book of Acts. They were living this stuff out at this time. And say Matthew 5 or Romans 8 or any of that stuff, they literally were listening to the apostles teach. And can you imagine what that must have been like? first-hand experience of them speaking about what it was like to be with Jesus. And and think about why this would be so precious to these individuals, these 3,000 people that come into the first church, a megachurch to start off with, and they meet at the temple, and they meet in these homes, and they're always talking about the apostles' teaching. Why? Because it's the very thing that changed their lives. If you have your Bibles, you can look back into Acts chapter 2, and you can see what ended up happening was on a day called the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes upon, there's 120 followers of Jesus when he dies and he raises and ascends into heaven, only 120. We've got more than that sitting in this room right now. 120. Twelve of them are what they call apostles, and so when the Spirit came upon them, they stood up and they began to speak to all the people that were in Jerusalem, and it happened at the day of Pentecost that all the people that were in Jerusalem were people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation were in Jerusalem. Remember the Great Commission? Preach the good news, Mark chapter 16, verse 15. Preach the good news to all of creation. Uh, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And so they stand up, they're obedient to that commission. They're being his witnesses, living on this mission, and they proclaim Jesus. These people are all Galileans, these 12 disciples. And so the people are confused by it. And they say in Acts chapter 2 and verse 5, they say, Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Verse 6, When they heard this sound, this preaching of these 12 men, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. This wasn't ecstatic talking of tongues. This was speaking like they were speaking French, German, Russian, Spanish, all this stuff at the same time so that everybody hears the gospel. And then look at what they say. Utterly amazed, they ask, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Yeah, they were all Galileans. Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language, the Holy Spirit's doing the miraculous through these men on this day? And then Luke is so candid with us in his recording in Acts here that he actually tells us there's guys that start heckling 
the disciples. And they start saying, these guys are speaking, this sounds like babble. What, is what in the world is this? These guys must be drunk. Somebody's been tipping back on grandma's cough syrup, and now everybody's paying attention. And then Peter stands up, and he's like, no, 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 that's not what's happening. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. So they're not drunk. Let me tell you what's happening. He begins to speak boldly about Jesus Christ. Remember who it is that's speaking? Peter, who a couple months earlier denied knowing Jesus. He's now been transformed by the Spirit of God. And he's standing before the very people who killed Jesus. And he stands up and he says, Jesus Christ, whom you know was set apart by God because you saw the miracles. And he's speaking to an audience of people, some of whom ate when Jesus fed the 5,000. He's speaking to an audience of people, some of whom were healed by Jesus and then still turned their backs on him. And so when he stands up and he says to them, that Jesus Christ was set apart by God. He's got their attention because also 10 days ago, Jesus was just appearing to people, hundreds of people. This is the town buzz. He's got a captive audience and he says to them, Jesus Christ was set apart by God. He was your Messiah. He came to die for your sins and you killed him. And now it's real. God was here and we killed him. And it becomes very personal for these people as they're listening to this message. And look at what it says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 37. This first sermon that was ever preached in the Christian church was interactive. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, What shall we do? Now what? We blew it. And then Peter tells them about a new beginning. Look at what he says. He replied, Repent. You were going a way that seemed right to you. You even thought you were doing what God wanted you to do. But you need to stop and turn. You repent and be baptized. Identify yourself with Jesus, the one who you rejected. And it was your rejection that put him on the cross. Repent and be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then you will receive the Holy Spirit. You will experience transformation. You will be set on a new direction. And then they devoted themselves here to the apostles' teaching because that's what transformed their lives. Can you imagine what it was like to hear the apostles teach? First-hand experience with Jesus. No, open your Bibles to Matthew 5. Let me tell you about the Sermon on the Mount. This man... Matthew chapter 5, as Philip starts to talk about it, it's a cloudy day, and I was sitting next to this guy, he was hung over from the night before, and Jesus got up, and he started to say these things, and let me tell you what the response was like from the people, and let me tell you how you should respond. Can you imagine what it was like to hear that teaching? Can you imagine what it was like to hear Nathaniel talk about being called to Jesus, and how he comes to Jesus, you could read about it in the Gospel of John, but he, he tells his story to the people, that's how they've heard this stuff, and he talks about when he came to Jesus, Jesus already knew him. And he said, how did you know me? He said, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. In other words, I know your life before you met me, and I still choose you. Can you imagine what it was like to hear Matthew share his story? About what he was like when he was Levi, the tax collector, the worst of the worst. Nobody liked him. And Jesus is walking along the shore one day, and he's picking people to come follow him. He's picking his disciples. And he calls Levi. If you were one of the worst of the worst and thought to yourself, God would never want me. I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I'm too bad. Can you imagine how that would impact you to hear that now one of his voice pieces was one of the worst of the worst? And you hear the apostles teaching daily. You're committed to this teaching of the apostles. And what do you think they taught in these conversations that they had with Jesus? And Jesus would tell the parables, and he would tell them things. He didn't tell the whole crowd. And how amazing was it to hear that teaching and to see how Jesus related with different people? Whether it's the woman with seven demons, whether it's the woman that had five husbands, whether it was Joseph of Arimathea, the wealthy of the wealthy, whether it was Nicodemus, a Pharisee, how he related with these people. And seeing how Jesus related with people. And if there was ever somebody who didn't need a relationship, it was Jesus. And let's just be honest today. You know I'm talking about real relationships. 
Some of you here today will think to yourself, I don't need that. I don't have time. I'm busy. I've got kids. I've got a job. Uh, this is just kind of how I do life. I spend time with just my family or whatever it is that you do. And you've got things that you need to accomplish and you don't have space for this or you don't trust people or whatever reason that you have. Here's what I want to ask you to do for me today. At the very least, be honest with yourself and admit you think you don't need that and you're not going to be committed to it. At least be that honest with yourself. And I'll be honest with you about myself. Being transparent with you, I don't naturally desire relationships. I am an extrovert. I like crowds, but depth of intimacy, not, not my thing. I go to, I'm the kind of guy, sorry, sensitivity. I'll, I'll see people crying at a movie, and I'll think to myself, what's wrong with you? Like, why are you crying? They're just actors. I mean, they're all getting paid to do this thing anyways. And, just, I just kinda, and I've thought to myself sometimes, I thought, what's wrong with me? Why am I not crying? You know, my wife's sitting next to me crying, and it's just kind of how I am. When I take a personality test, it'll tell me things like, good at work, good at making decisions, not good at relationships. And so I don't naturally gravitate towards relationships. I don't naturally trust people. I'll assume they have an agenda. I'll assume that they're trying to get something from me. That's, that's how I am. It's how I'm made. Let me tell you what else I've learned. And I'm not saying this just because I'm a pastor. I'm not getting paid extra money to talk about relationships, and I don't like relationships. Let me tell you what, what, I'm, what, what I've learned. The abundant life that Jesus promises, a huge part of that is relationships. Amen. You and I both need Relationships. Now, whether we'll be committed to them or not is a decision we have to make. But what I've learned and what I've realized is that life is far better, far richer in real relationships. I don't have hundreds of them, but I've got relationships that are real where people will sacrifice for me, where I would sacrifice for them. People will speak truth into my life. I would speak truth into their lives. We can confront sins, still love each other, make terrible decisions, still love each other. I know they're going to be there. And do you have that kind of relationship? I'm going to tell you, when you get intentional about that, that's a big deal. Now, the only person that I know of that's ever walked this earth that didn't actually need relationships is Jesus. And you think about Jesus for a couple of moments, and you can't even wrap your mind around it. He existed in eternity, so he's never, never not. And, and so he existed in eternity with Father, with Spirit, three as one, in essence God, but distinct persons. Wrap your mind around that for a couple of seconds. Okay, got it. Now he comes to earth, and one of the first things he does when he starts his ministry as he chooses 12 men to be in relationship with, men that he will laugh with, men that he will cry with, men that he will celebrate with, men that he will mourn with, men that he will eat with, men that he'll know what it is to be hungry with, and he'll know all the emotions and all the things that will take place to be disappointed, to be frustrated, to go without sleep, to go without food. He'll know all of that with these men. For three years, he'll be intimate with these guys. And he's Jesus. So going into it, he knows that he will be betrayed. Going into it, he knows that one of his closest, he's got three that are really close, Peter, James, John. He knows that one of the three will deny ever knowing him. And he'll pour his life out into this guy. He knows that when he's in the garden and he's praying, they keep falling asleep. And he just wants somebody to come with him with this burden that he's carrying, and, and they won't. They'll let him down. But he chooses relationship. Why? Why does he choose relationship? Knowing what he knows, being who he is. He tells us in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. We needed to see it because none of us would naturally do it. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then he says, by this all men will know that you're my disciples, that you follow me. If you love one another, what made the world stop and take notice? Something so out of the ordinary that none of us would naturally do it. 
that we be committed to other people based on biblical truth more than we're even committed to ourselves. And the world was in awe. That means that they sensed God's presence. And the people, they experienced the favor of all, not just the church people, of all the people. And they were committed to the apostles' teaching. What do you think it was like when the apostles got up and they started to teach what we call John chapter 17? They didn't have a John 17. When one of them, maybe Bartholomew, a lesser-known guy, stands up and says, oh, I remember the day when Jesus was preaching. And he stopped and he started praying. And he prayed for us. And then he prayed not only for us, but he prayed for you because he prayed for those who were yet to believe. And he prayed, Father, I pray that they would be one as you and I are one. Wrap your mind around that. And here's the reason why. So the world would know that you sent me because they would see something so different and so unique that they'd be in awe of it. They'd be drawn to it. And his mission, his plan involves our relationships. It's part of this new direction. He's got us on a mission and a key part of it is this relationships with one another. And when we're not in that, we're disobedient. And see, we see here they were devoted not only to the apostles' teaching, but you look at the next thing there. It was the fellowship. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. That's the scriptures like we have. And we should be in the word. And we should be committed to the word on a daily basis. But not only were they committed to the apostles' teaching, they were committed on a daily basis to the fellowship. There's an article there. It's not just to fellowship, to cookies and Coke and whatever that ends up being, hanging out with one another, to the fellowship of hanging out. No, it's the group of people to each other. They were devoted to each other. I'm trying to wrap your mind around that in our society. We're so individualistic. We're so isolated. But yet at the same time, we've got all these devices to try and keep us connected. iPads and iTouches and iPhones and all that kind of stuff. Most of it rolls around the eye. But anyway, you're looking at this. A great metaphor for our society is when you see people typing on their phone, whether they're tweeting or texting or whatever they're doing, and they're totally oblivious to everything that's happening around them. Have you ever seen that? There was a, a news thing that happened about two or three weeks ago where there's a new bro- news broadcaster that was telling the news the news. And I don't even know what he's talking about. And there's a telephone pole behind him. And some guy walks right into it tweeting. He falls down. And there's, a, there's one video that's kind of popular on YouTube of a woman that's walking in the mall and she's texting and she walks right into a fountain, falls face first. There's been about a million people that have seen it, so I don't know if you're one of them. <laughs> she actually sued uh, public safety or whoever it is at the mall for putting that on, but it's still on. I saw it a couple days ago. And so you can go find it if you want to. Uh, she's doing this thing and then she falls face first into a fountain. What a picture of us. We've got these devices to keep us connected. Could you be more disconnected from reality? It's like what we do. We think that we have relationships, but who really knows us? And who do we really know? And who are we really committed to? That'd be a great question. If you don't get anything out of this message, just ask yourself, who's really committed to me? And who am I really committed to? And outside of your immediate family, who is that? Many of us, if we're honest, we don't have anybody. And do you know what? That's not just a bad idea. That's actually disobedient Christianity because here we have an example in Acts chapter 2. But if you have a Bible and you turn over to Romans chapter 12 and verse 10, we're actually commanded to do this. Be devoted to one another. Be committed to one another in brotherly love in this love relationship and honor one another above ourselves. Who does that? Does anyone obey this? I mean, who really does this? In our culture, it's not uncommon to meet someone that says they're a Christian and they don't even, they're not even attached to a local body of believers. Let me tell you something. They're either, one, not a Christian, they're probably spiritual and believe in Jesus, or two, they're being disobedient. Because we're commanded to be committed to a body of believers. Be devoted to one another. In fact, so much so that you actually love the other people more than you love yourself. Who does that? 
Talk about accountability. Talk about a need for relationships to know and be known. And then you go on, you continue to read through the scriptures and we see throughout the scriptures, all these things we're commanded to do because we all have a role and we all have a responsibility in the body of Christ. And so we serve one another in love. If you want no true freedom, Galatians chapter five says, if you want no true freedom, then here's what you do. You serve one another. That's real freedom. If you want to know what it's like to live in community, you bear one another's burdens, Galatians chapter six. Ephesians chapter four, you forgive just as Jesus forgave you. You see in Romans chapter 15 and verse 7, we'll put it on the screen. Romans chapter 15 and verse 7 says, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. Who does that? Because most of us when we meet people, we, we make discernments about them. And, and we either discern that they're not as good as us or they're better than us. And so then we decide what we think about them based on that. When we came to Jesus, how many of us were just like Jesus? And then here we're told to accept one another then just as Christ accepted us blemishes, warts, past, regrets, all that stuff. And then in Ephesians chapter 4, I love this one. It says we're supposed to be honest with one another. Be completely humble and gentle and be patient, bearing with one another in love. That's verses 2 and 3, and we'll skip through some of that. And this chapter talks about this incredible unity in the body of Christ. It's also the chapter that talks about forgiving one another. But then in verse 25, it says this. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully. If this is ever going to happen, here's how it has to happen. You're going to be humble and gentle with one another. You're going to have unity with one another. You've got to be honest with one another. Put off falsehood. Speak truthfully to your neighbor. And that doesn't mean running to your neighbor and telling them all the stuff that's wrong with them. You know, what truthfully means is let's be honest about ourselves. Let's be honest about our stuff. Let's be willing to speak truth into someone's life even when they don't want to hear the truth because you care about them more than you care about yourself. Gently, humbly. That's the context here. And who does that? Well, these Christians did. And in verse 46, it's described as they were glad and had sincere hearts. That word for sincere, it means an openness. There was a transparency there. And where can you find a place other than Starbucks and the bar where people are willing to be honest about their lives? Is it the church? Let's at least be honest today. And we've seen glimpses of it here at this church. We did grace stories, over 60 people right down there. Stuff, they put it up on a banner out in the lobby for you to see. There's real people that go to church here, not just from traveling around the world and being persecuted and not just people that have had difficult stories, but people of every story from the worst stuff that could possibly happen to you to, I don't feel like I have much of a story because I haven't had bad stuff happen to me. Every situation we had a guy share in a video testimony that he never thought God would forgive him because he visited prostitutes. What do you think that was like for that guy to be honest about his stuff, to put himself out there? Now, what are you going to say to that guy? I know about you. Yeah, I said it to hundreds of people. So what? And God's transformed my life. What do you think it felt like to all the other men in our church that have visited prostitutes and never told anybody? What do you think it felt like to the about 70% of men in our population that are addicted to pornography. You see, but many people will think, I can never tell anybody my stuff because Satan has you in a spot of isolation. It's exactly where he wants you. And God tells us we've got to be in a community of transparency. We've got to be in a community of truthfulness and openness and honesty. And even when that means, well, I don't have that kind of stuff. Oh, really? Well, don't go out and do it just so you can have something to talk about in Christian circles. Because let the people that have been through it tell you it, it, there's more than just what you see on the screen. And, and there's the 
the regrets and the baggage and what that feels like and what it is to truly focus on God's love as we sang about in that song. I don't have time to think about my regrets when I'm focused on God's love. Where do you think Satan wants you? And so you need to be in a place where there's truthfulness. He wants you in isolation. A woman shares with our church that she's had an abortion, multiple abortions. And no one else wants to say anything, but statistics say that one in four women resonate with that at church. And so you stay in your isolation and you're trapped. You're in community. We're committed to one another where you care about others more than you even care about yourself. There's a freedom that comes in that. That's what God desires for us. That's his plan. And they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to one another. And there was an outflow that happened, and it was a generosity. See, new community requires a new kind of commitment, but it expresses itself in a genuine generosity. New community expresses itself in genuine generosity. And we see it in this passage. In verses 44 and 45, it talks about this even hit them in the pocketbook. It says in verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They were all NC State fans. <laughs> That wasn't what it meant, but they had everything in common, and they weren't all using the same brush, okay? That's not what it meant. They were united in heart, they were united in mind, and united in purpose around the glory of God, and they all benefited from it. And an overflow of that, verse 45, selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Now, sometimes you'll hear people, this is like a kind of verse that a cult leader loves, okay? They grab a verse like this and talk about how everybody needs to pool their resources together, and Christianity used to be like socialism, and we all put it, except for the leader gets a lot more than everybody, but everybody else has the same. That's kind of how it works. Then we get together, and we talk about the day we're going to drink Kool-Aid and inherit a planet, and so that's kind of what happens, and they live in this little commune with one another. That's not what this verse says. Okay, what this verse is teaching is that they genuinely, out of an overflow of their heart, no one was obligated to, those who had more gave so that those who didn't have their needs, and needs are things like food, clothes, water, shelter, those who didn't have their needs met had those needs met. While other people still had more, it wasn't that everybody had the same. And you see it in verse 46, they met in houses. Whose houses do you think they met in? The believers' houses. In chapter 4 and chapter 5, you see that it's done willingly. People sell their possessions. It's a genuine thing, not an obligation. See, generosity for the believer should never... When we're commanded to be generous, we shouldn't even need to be commanded to be generous. If God's been so generous with us, it should be an overflow of our hearts. And this is why the people were in awe, because what they were seeing was they were seeing God through them. And God's a giver, right? For God so loved the world that he took stuff, hoarded stuff, and holding back. If you really get to know me, then maybe I'll show you. He gave his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus gave himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. He became poor who was rich so that we could be rich. Rich in his mercies. Rich in his grace. Rich in the access to every spiritual blessing that we have. See, that's the example is that he's a giver. And so let me ask you this simple question. We talk about generosity. What if we as a church actually believed what Jesus said. What if we actually believe the words of Jesus? I'm not saying to take anything away from other parts of the Bible, but what if we actually believe the things that actually came from the lips of Jesus and we lived according to that? Now, he said a lot of stuff. I'll take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me, the least will be first, all that kind of stuff, the last will be first, all that. But one of the things he said, the apostle, coming to the apostle's teaching, the apostle Paul says to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 35, he says this. He's weeping with these men, telling them not to allow false sheep or false shepherds to come in and mess with this church that he's planted. 
He says, in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, how he worked with his own hands, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. What if we actually believed that? That it's more blessed to give than to receive. Think about how that would change stuff. We would look for opportunities to bless other people. The resources that we've been given. Think about how it would change the lives of so many people in the Bible. Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells the story about the guy who's got crops and things are being blessed by God. God's just giving him more and more crops and so he keeps building bigger and bigger barns and he says to himself, I know what I'll do with all my extra stuff. I'll become a first century hoarder and they'll make a TV show about me and I'll have more and more stuff. And you can read it yourself, Luke chapter 12, but what ends up happening is that Jesus says, you fool, don't you know that tomorrow your very life will be demanded for you? And you worked your whole life for the stuff that will be gone tomorrow. What if that guy actually believed it was better to give than to receive? Or what about the poor guy in Luke chapter 18, 19, the rich young ruler that comes to Jesus and he says, I'm moral, I go to church. He's probably the kind of guy that you look at and is like a role model for society. He says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do to have this new beginning these other people are getting? And he says, go sell all your stuff, give it to the poor, and then you come follow me. And Jesus says that, not because you buy eternal life, because he knows this guy loves stuff more than he loves God. And so he doesn't mince words with the guy. He just tells him, here, you love your stuff more than you love God? God's got to be foremost in your heart. And so why don't you go sell all your stuff? And the guy leaves sad. You know why he leaves sad? He just lost eternal life. Think about his life would have been different if he believed, genuinely believed it was better to give than to receive. Or in Luke chapter 16, have you ever seen Jesus teach this parable in Luke 16? Maybe you've read this before. It's the shrewd manager or the dishonest manager. Jesus tells a story about a guy who loses his job, and then he tells the guy, here's what you need to do. Jesus' words, Jesus says, use your money to make friends. Use money to win people. Most of us will use people to get money. But he says, use money to influence people for the kingdom, because when the money's gone, the people won't be. When the money's gone, you'll still have crowns in heaven. The money will be gone, but use it. What, what do you think? How different would it be for us if we actually applied that and we believe that it was better to give than it is to receive? Some of the people in our church, they get this, okay? Because the pastor, I could just rail on, you know, Christians give 2 to 3% of their income. We should at least tithe, and now we're in grace, and we should give more than that. And all that. I could do that. I won't do that today. Let me just brag upon that we have a generous church, and we're not in the national averages, and giving to the church and being devoted to one another, but then also on the stuff that doesn't get recorded. I mean, we know what people give based on the giving that they put in the boxes and stuff, but there's all kinds of stuff that happens through our church. I emailed our community group leaders this week, and just said, can you tell me how some of this Acts chapter 2 stuff happens? And what a lot of them wrote back was generous stories. Some people were generous with one another. And here's why. Because the majority of people that get generosity understand community. So they're headed in this new direction. It's actually an overflow. It's not because somebody beat them over the head and told them they had to do this. It's an overflow of realizing what God's done for them. And so you got stories. One you saw this morning, just a couple that decides to pick a family coming from another country, a large family, if you didn't notice, and help them, spending you know, hours at a time at the doctor, five hours in a doctor's visit helping them buy clothes because they just come with a little bag of stuff, toothbrushes, deodorant, giving money, resources as well, time, using their talents, showing that they've been blessed with stuff and there's other people that have needs. I'm not talking about jet skis and fur coats. I'm talking about like groceries. And we've got people in, in groups, I had groups to tell me about people that buying groceries for people that were struggling that were in their group, people that weren't in their group and didn't even go to this church. We've got actually places in our community that send people to our church because they know that we are generous. Yeah, some of them are coming to take advantage of us. Great. Maybe they'll see God in the process. 
And there's, there's folks that have painted houses, done construction work. Uh, there's people that have actually given money. I know one group that actually gave money, actually saved a kid's life, allowed them to have a surgery. There's people that they do this stuff because they get it. It's genuine generosity. Not an obligation, not because you have to, because of what's been done for you. That you actually love others. And then the world would know that we're his. We've been bought with a price. We belong to him. Because they see something that's so different. And we have to ask ourselves, are we really that different? Individually, corporately, is the church really that different than any other social organization? And what is it that they should see? They will know you're my followers by the way that you love one another. You love just as I've loved you. This is a new commandment. What's new about this? It's in the book of Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. What is new? They've seen what Jesus has done. And now they're committed to one another. Who's committed to you? Who are you committed to? They're committed to these teachings. What relationships do you have that are really grounded on the Bible? They'll speak truth to one another, open and honest with one another. And there's a generosity that flows from that. There's results that you see that are tangible, real results because of this kind of commitment. In our church, we provide for people that attend Southbridge, and even we have people that don't attend Southbridge that come to some of our groups. We provide community groups. It doesn't guarantee that you'll have this. Some groups have it, some groups don't. If you don't have it, I would challenge you to, to talk about that. Now, some groups, they have this kind of relationship with the people within the group. And sometimes not with everybody in the group, and you connect with different people in different ways, understand all that, but what we're providing as a church are environments of people that are saying they want these kinds of relationships. And we got them available for everybody. I think it's around 60 to 70% of people take advantage of that. I want you to know that every person here has the opportunity, whether you're a member, not a member, to be in a group. We've got a community group's kiosk out in the lobby. The response team's going to be down here after the service. Everyone that's involved with those things and knows about community groups would love to get you connected to one. If you don't have one, then my desire for you today is that you would get connected with the group. At least try one out for a month. One time could be a bad experience. One time could be an overly good experience. Try one out for about a month. And see about people that really, they're they're saying they want to give their lives to impact other people's lives. They're saying they're on mission. Connect people to Jesus for life change, to be his witnesses to all nations. And how do we do this? And they get together other than just this group and they talk about that in a casual setting. I challenge you to check one out. Some of you are in groups, but you've got kind of laissez-faire about how it happens. I want to challenge you to be recommitted to one another. Redevoted to the study of the scriptures recommitted to what it is to truly be a group together and be honest in your conversations about who you are, where you're coming from, what's going on in your life. If you don't have that in your group, we've got others. And so we would love for you to be connected in that way so that the world would know what God's done in our lives. Do you have that? I hope so. Let's pray. Father, we come before you knowing there will be people that could leave here today and feel like no one knows them. There will be people that will leave here today and feel like they don't need what we're trying to offer. And Father God, will you meet with them? Will you meet with them and pull them into your truth? Will you please show them what it is you have for them and it's actually for their good and for your glory? And Father God, will you break down the hearts of people like me uh, that would not ever naturally choose relationship? When you show us the depth and riches of what it is to be known and to know others. And Father, I pray for those that long for relationship, that love this kind of thing, that want to be together and want to be connected, Father, that you'd give them opportunities to invest in others. And you make it abundantly clear and you'd guide and direct by your spirit when to be generous, when to be confrontational, when to carry a burden. 
God, will you please speak to each one of us this morning? Supernaturally, by your power, we trust your spirit to do the miraculous in our midst. We love you. It's in Jesus' name I pray.